welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Hey, Laura, if our listeners want to support our podcast, what can they do? You can go to our website at clovercrestmedia.com, where we have merchandise, a donate button, and all of the books we talk about. We also can be found at buymeacoffee.com, and we would love any input or suggestions from our listeners, and we can be reached by email at ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. And very importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. We really appreciate all the support we've gotten so far. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. I'm Sarah. And I'm Laura. And we want to thank everyone for tuning in. We have a great show today, so we're going to dive right in. But first, we want to say a special thank you to our editor, Joe. He's really the man behind the show. He is. He's just fabulous, and he puts up with us. Uh, and when, <laughs> yes, that's putting it lightly, because we bother him from 6 a.m. to midnight and it, beyond. It's true. He's a patient man and a, and a really wonderful one, so we want to give him and Clovercrest Media and everyone who's a part of it a special shout-out. Uh, absolutely. I just wanted to mention, too, I just went down to Miami, and I had the honor of having dinner at Versace's house. It is an incredible scene. It was absolutely an experience. And I ran into four young men from LA. I called them the Versace boys and just had a blast. And one of them dared me to actually dive into the fountain with him. I didn't, which is because unusual. Because you didn't want to ruin the dress. Yeah, I didn't want to ruin the dress. Yeah, but I know why you didn't do it. But Marvin and the boys, if you're listening, I just wanted to say it was so much fun. And just a little side note, Sarah, I was actually there the night of the murder. I lived in Miami at the time, and so we went right down. And then we're also there the night that Andrew Cananan was found, because we were circling the beach when the police were. Wow. Because I've been a crime junkie for quite some time. Oh, wow. So, But let's get right to the show. Absolutely. So this week's show is called... The Valentino Affair. We're basing this podcast off of the book written by Colin Evans. He is no longer with us, Mr. Evans, I believe. Yes, but we want to definitely encourage anyone to read the book. It's a great book. Very fast read, very entertaining story. So let's get right to it. Yes. So historically, women are murdered all the time by their husbands and without much fanfare. But sometimes the tables turn. Often on Ivy League murders, we discuss people who went to one of the eight Ivies and then made the worst decision a human being can make, which is to take the life of another. In this particular case, the murder victim was a man named Jack DeSalles, and he was a football star at Yale University. Blanca DeSalles shot her husband over child custody in years of pent-up frustration. The DeSalles murder and subsequent trial dominated the press in late 1917. The headlines and daily news reports covering the trial often eclipse the World War I headlines. 
the public ate up the juicy details of the exotic heiress from Chile and the philandering husband. People were trampling over each other, stampeding to get seats in the courtroom. So riveted were they by Mrs. DeSalle's testimony, her crime of passion, and her attorney's artful portrayal of the waifish Blanca as the true victim, driven to the extremes by her husband's cruelty. But would it work? If not, she faced the death penalty. The murder of Jack DeSalle took place the evening of August 3, 1917, in Westchester, New York. An unsuspecting cab driver picked up a wealthy-looking woman and her maid. The woman was impatient and rude, having waited a long time for the cab, and she spoke curtly to him. She gave directions to the box estate in a heavy Spanish accent, and when they arrived, she had the taxi stop outside the estate to drop them off, so as not to be seen. She told the driver to wait. She wouldn't be long, and the two women, she and her maid, hurried off. Not long after, five gunshots rang out, and what started as an ideal marriage was over. So let's rewind a little bit. John DeSalles, or Jack as his friends called him, was the picture of class and refinement. The son of a socialite and the superintendent of the New Jersey Zinc Company, he was raised with riches and opportunities afforded to few. He was a star football player at Yale and hobnobbed with the society of the day, families such as the Whitney's and the Vanderbilt's. Glamorous and dashing is how Jack appeared in 1911 in Chile when he attended the 26th running of the Classico al Derby horse race. Everywhere he looked around the crowd, he saw international wealth and influence. But Jack not only focused on the horse race, he was hunting for a wealthy Chilean wife. And he set his scope on the flower of the Andes. That was 16-year-old heiress, stunningly beautiful aristocrat Blanca Arrazoros. But gold digger alert, DeSalles had previously been engaged to other heiresses. Blanca was born in Vina del Mar, Chile, the eldest daughter of Guillermo Arrazuris and Blanca Vieira Alvarez. She was a beauty known as the Star of Santiago, and thus Blanca was a member of the politically influential Arrazuris family of Basque descent. Blanca's father, a mining magnet, died when she was two and she was educated at Sacred Heart Convent in London, England in 1911. The family had originally hailed from Spain and had gone to Chile in 1733 and had since amassed a fortune from mining silver. This had generated tremendous political power for a family that had ranked among Chile's nobility. And it's really hard to say if Jack fell for Blanca or her fortune. Even Jack was impressed by the displays of wealth he saw among the family. One can only guess Jack envisioned his future as being nobility itself. I bet you he pictured himself on a big estancia with horses and castles. and. Yeah, yeah, I think that he was far more attracted to her money than to anything else. Absolutely. But he courted her and he was very, very charming. Very handsome guy, Jack DeSalle's. You could just tell he just swept her off of her feet. No, she was a sheltered, innocent teenage girl. And she fell head over heels for him, Sarah. And her family was wary, but Jack promised to never take Blanca back to America and swore to raise any children Catholic. So it's hard to say if Jack ever had any intention of keeping this promise. And after a few weeks wait, they basically just sailed off to Paris and got married. Absolutely. Now, it's important to note that DeSalle's was Protestant. 
So they had to get papal dispensation right, which, for them yes. to marry, which they eventually did. So they were kind of waiting for this. So at first, they seemed like a golden couple. And really, Laura, how many times have we seen this? It yes. reminds me of the Woodwards. <laughs> kind of every case. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of the Woodwards, like beautiful, wealthy couple, that, and they look perfect from the outside. They live in castles. They live in Europe and New York. Very jet set. Of course, they're going to be happy, right? Right, but they're not. And it's also not the first time we've seen second generation wealth where these people just have no purpose in life and nothing to do. Yeah, exactly. And they're just very, very unhappy. It sounds great. But when they return, (laughs) yeah, right. You know, in reality, it's not. They're very unhappy. And when they return from their honeymoon to Chile, Jack went about setting their affairs in order. And it's about this time he realizes that it's under Chilean law, once they're married, all of her property becomes his. So he gets back from the honeymoon, figuring he's going to now be in charge of this vast amount of money. And he's shocked to realize that, you know, he had planned for a grand estate and a life of leisure. But he really is shocked when he discovers that Blanca's money is all in trusts. Her father had been very intelligent about this, wanted to protect her against fortune hunters like Jack DeSalle's, basically. Right, he was smart. And so Jack was enraged and felt duped, insisted that the now pregnant Blanca go to her mother and secure the funds he needed. Totally distraught, Blanca did as she was told. Jack threatened that if he didn't get the money, he would return to America and the grandmother wouldn't see her grandchild. Blanca's mother offered to turn over one of her homes to Jack, but this generous offer wasn't good enough for Jack. He booked passage to America. Yeah, I mean, this is just a really mean, spiteful thing to do. He doesn't get the money he wants, so he takes her and the babe, you know. He's kind of using Blanca, the pregnant Blanca, as a pawn at this point. Right, and he doesn't get his way, and he takes her back. By the time they return to America, he realizes he has to try to save his marriage for the sake of his child and reputation. It's also about this time, incidentally, that Jack purchases a small Smith & Wesson revolver for Blanca to have as protection, which wasn't very unusual at the time. No, not at all. And actually, further research, what comes to light is that Chilean women at this time, they knew their way around guns, sure. basically. Yeah. It wasn't So Blanca, too, had tried to put up with the fights and the problems and try to put this all behind her and work on her marriage. She held a very traditional view of marriage and felt she had a duty to support her husband. On December 5th, 1912, Blanca gave birth to Jack Jr. at his parents' estate. Jack would keep one promise, and he had Jack Jr. baptized Catholic. Jack now immersed himself in politics, working on Woodrow Wilson's campaign. He would head Wilson's college men's league. Wilson was a Princeton man, and many were surprised when he picked Jack from Yale, but Jack delivered. And when Wilson won in a landslide, Jack hoped to be made ambassador to Chile. This would fulfill his social and political aspirations. And I just want to say as a side note, I think Jack really wanted to kind of proved to the Chilean aristocracy that had kind of snubbed him. I think he wanted to be like, hey, look, now I'm the ambassador. So after weeks of silence, Jack finally received the call that he had been awaiting. He had actually not been appointed to Chile, but he had been appointed to the ambassadorship in Uruguay. So he was crushed. This is a huge accomplishment. And this gets a little bizarre to me. It's true because Blanc is ecstatic. She couldn't wait to return to a Spanish-speaking country. She looked forward to being the wife of an ambassador. 
So huge shock, Jack turned down the post. Which we should add, no one had ever done in like the American history prior to this time. No one had ever turned down an ambassadorship. Uh, that's right. And further manipulation, Jack's only explanation for turning down the post was that he didn't think they had the finances to support the lifestyle of a foreign ambassador, which is bizarre because they treated these people like royalty. It was just an excuse. I don't think he wanted to move to Europe. And instead, the couple basically kind of settles in New York, but Jack would just never settle. No, and to Blanca's distress, she rarely saw Jack, who spent most of his time at clubs in New York City, while he tucked her away in Westchester at his parents' house. And the rumors of her husband's philandering began to reach her, and she even saw a picture of a starlet in his wallet. He did very little to hide his affairs, and her anger mounted. This is when the story gets a little bit of a twist. Right around this time, Blanca met a young emerging star of the dance floor, the future Rudolph Valentino. So Valentino had another name, which I can't pronounce at this time. <laughs> he changed it eventually. So he was a handsome Italian who was the king of the hottest new dance, the Argentine tango, which was just like super hip at the time. Valentino started out as a quote unquote, a taxi dancer at Maxime's. And this is a dance partner for hire who also gave, quote unquote, private lessons in his studio. So at this time, and this was even considered kind of risque, but even society women would go out to these afternoon tea dances and you would go and dance with these taxi dancers and learn the newest dance lessons. And then you'd be- I wouldn't have minded dancing with Rudolph Valentino. And then for an extra fee, you could get- private lessons in the studio. And if you hear any euphemism in our voice, that's what it's about. Yes, private lessons. So one night, Valentino met Blanca, which he was struck by both her beauty and her sad vulnerability. Keep in mind, her husband is carrying on. She's sort of trying to be young, happy, go out into the world. But I think it's clear that Valentino had a real white knight kind of thing. He wanted to rescue the damsel in distress, and Blanca was the perfect damsel in distress. And it's not clear if they had an affair, but they cultivated a friendship. And he confirmed to Blanca that her husband, Jack, was having an open affair with another dancer that he knew well and actually danced with, a woman by the name of Joan Sawyer. If you picture, they were like the Fred and Ginger of Manhattan society. They're pretty famous. So Rudolph Valentino and Joan Sawyer were dance partners like that. And Jack had had a few affairs, even when his son, Jack Jr., in front of him, Sarah, Jack Jr. would report back to his mother about it. And there were all kinds of humiliations, poor Blanca. She would show up to a club where Jack was, and she would say, hey, I'm Jack's wife. Oh, which one? People would say to her, and that kind of thing. And I mean, he was an alcoholic, and they would like do this kind of go to London and go back and he'd call for her. Oh, God. No, the, the like the transatlantic flits were like he would go to London. He would say, oh, darling, please come and see me. Please come and see me. Then he would cancel last minute or she would pack up 
all of her bads and her servants and Jack Jr. go over to London and then he would completely blow her off. He was not husband of the year, Jack DeSalle, I must say. No, definitely not. But somehow the affair with Joan Sawyer was really the final straw for the heartbroken Blanca. She really had had enough and she immediately enlisted the help of, I love this, Sarah, the Diamond Detective Agency on Fifth Avenue, which was a discreet agency used by people of means. And they started collecting evidence immediately. I mean, at that time, you needed cause for divorce. And they found Jack was indeed having an affair, not only with Sawyer, but with many other women. And this is why he insisted on staying in the city while keeping her tucked away in Westchester. I just want to say as a note to Blanca's heavy-duty Catholic. Divorce is a big deal. This oh, is yeah, not like, something she wanted to. No, not she at all. wanted this to was, do. This would have been shameful for her and her family. This was not something that she took on lightheartedly. And she loved him. I think she really was in love with him for a long time. I definitely agree with that. But she did finally file for divorce. She did. That was it. She filed for divorce. During the divorce, what's interesting is that Valentino, still the savior, still trying to come to the rescue, he took the stand against Jack DeSalle, and he basically throws Joan Sawyer, his dance partner, under the bus by doing this. And eventually, he sort of ruins his own career. If you want to find out a little bit more about Rudolph Valentino, yes. listen to the Bowery Boys. They have a great episode on him. And just as an aside, I just want to say that I lived two doors down. When I lived in the Hollywood Hills, I lived two doors down from Rudolph Valentino's castle, basically. Madonna was living at the time. I think she still does. And it's an incredible place. It truly is like a castle castle. Yeah, definitely listen. The Bowery Boys is a great podcast about New York. They have a whole episode on Valentino. Really, really interesting. They do mention this case. We use the Bowery Boys podcast a lot for reference, different period pieces we use. So I definitely shout out to the Bowery Boys. Absolutely. And so after the divorce goes through, Jack DeSalle is pissed off at Valentino. And he smears Valentino's name in this sort of sham case of like vice charges. Basically, he hires his own detective to go follow Valentino. He's in some house of ill repute, what have you. Yeah, he he basically gets him kind of jammed up for a little while. And he ruins Valentino. But the funny thing about this is that Valentino then changes his name to Rudolph Valentino. Right, he moves to LA. And he moves to LA and becomes this ginormous celebrity. Right, huge, huge. So post-divorce, Blanca's life was consumed by the custody arrangements she was beholden to from the court. So they had these really weird custody arrangements. No, I wouldn't really say weird, but I mean, things were so much different then. So Jack was completely responsible for his son's education. It was even in the custody arrangement that young Jack would go to Yale. Isn't that funny? That is funny. That there'd be that expectation of that he would just definitely go to Yale. Oh my gosh. So he would spend the summers with his mother... And during the year, because it was in this patriarchal society, thought that the male, of course, would be better suited to choose the education of the young boy. She's completely consumed by this custody agreement, like, you picked him up a day late, so I get to keep him a day late type of thing. To Blanca's credit, though, too... Jack DeSalle is also doing this kind of competitive thing with his son. He basically builds like a whole carnival at his estate, the Box estate, to 
keep his boy interested in staying there. Right. I mean, there's a real, you get the sense there's a lot of kind of like game, Disney dad. Game, yeah. Like, yeah, like game playing. Yeah, he puts Disneyland basically in his estate. I mean, what kid is not going to want to stay there? So all of these tensions and passions and anger all come to a head on August 3rd, 1917. Before we get to that, though, I just want to say it's kind of interesting to me in the book that Blanca de Sol, there's a very famous murder case that had gone on in New York. High profile, the woman's name was Carmen, and she had killed her husband and gotten away with it. And Blanca de Sol had watched the trial. She'd gone to the trial. Very interesting. So I, I think it is kind of interesting. So tell us a little bit about August 3rd, 1917. Well, earlier in the day, on that day, Jack had asked Blanca if Jack Jr. could come over and see him. And she was hesitant, but he promised to have him back for dinner. And she finally relented and allowed him to be picked up. Although there was, you know, some problems with the maid and she wouldn't give him to the first maid because she said he was rude. But finally, you know, he was picked up and went over there to his father's estate, which was called The Box. So back at her house, Blanca had told her cook and maid to prepare dinner for her and her son. And when Jack Jr. wasn't returned by 7 p.m., she began to panic. So she called to Saul Estate and was told that Jack was out and that Jack Jr. had been put to bed. So Blanca was enraged. And so she hurries over with her maid over to the estate. And according to her maid, the reason they hurried is that when Blanca telephoned her ex-husband Jack's house, the butler there said that Jack would be at his country club until 9 p.m. So Blanca was hurrying in hopes that she could go get her boy quickly before the father returned. But Jack Sr. was there on the porch when Blanca arrived and they began arguing, according to the people present including his sister, who excused herself and left, and another friend of Jack's named Ward, who was nearby when the five shots rang out. Ward's testimony would be heavily debated in trial. So Blanca brings the gun, and she shoots him point blank five times. She had hidden the gun in a sort of a white silk cardigan that she was wearing. This was the kind of gun that you would have to cock each time you pulled the trigger. It wasn't like bam, 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 bam. It was bam, click, bam, click. You've got to release. But let's take the listener back a minute. So she goes into the house. She sees Jack unexpectedly because she thought he wasn't home. And she asks for her son. And he says... You can't take him. You can't ever have him back. According to, according to her. And she shoots him. That was what made her snap. That's what she said. She didn't dispute that she shot him. She sat very quietly. She didn't go to help Jack. She sat in the yard and said, we should call the police. Right. And sat there quietly. And the police come. And they arrest Blanca. And meanwhile, they actually took a while to get to the estate because they couldn't really find it. I guess it's kind of like in the country and difficult to find. In the meantime, Jack dies. Right. So she's arrested. Yes. I mean, there's no... Of course, you know, the press goes crazy. And this is a huge, huge deal. This beautiful, young Chilean heiress has killed her husband or ex-husband in cold blood. Five times. Yes. In front of witnesses. 
I mean, this is very sensational, Sarah. Absolutely. And this really, like we said, this owned the headlines. World War I is going on. There's a lot going on in the news at this time. This has absolutely captivated people. And then enter Utterheart. She gets this captivating attorney. Yes. Who's kind of larger than life. Absolutely. And his theatricality during the whole trial process, he paints her as the biggest victim. He's going up against the powerful district attorney, a man by the name of Weeks. And Weeks really approaches this like, this is an open and shut case. Because it kind of is. It I mean, kind of is. is. She we, goes know. in and shoots the guy five times. Come in on. In front of witnesses. Right. And so there's a lot of buildup to the case. There's a lot of press. There's a lot of conjecture. And... They have an all-male jury. They call them silver-haired jury, you know, right. of older men who are sitting as a jury. Both the jury and the judge are very sympathetic with Blanca. I mean, you have to understand she presents as a very waifish. She's very pale, very skinny at this point. She looks tiny. Yeah, I think they almost wanted to protect her more than convict her. And I think today even we have a hard time finding women guilty for heinous crimes. We have a hard time seeing them as perpetrators, never mind 100 years ago. So I think it was very difficult for them to see her. And, you know, Utterheart's hypothesis that a thyroid disorder and heat stroke and a fall on the head and some other things had all caused her to basically black out and not remember this. I mean, it's a pretty unconvincing argument, but it worked. It did work. At the same time, what was said about this trial is that it wasn't Blanca de Sals that was on trial. They basically put Jack de Sals' character on trial. Exactly. And painted the picture that he basically drove his wife crazy. Right. It kind of reminds me of the first Betty Broderick trial. Yes. It's kind of like, could you blame her? Right. Like, right. you know, he was so horrible. Yeah, I kind of have a problem with this because, I mean, you almost see the reverse. You know, it's like this poor weak woman, she couldn't have done it, but she did it. And she actually played her role during the trial. Oh, very, very, very very well. she's a very spoiled, entitled woman, which is very apparent during the trial. Now, the consequence for her would have been death. Yes, if she she had been found guilty of first-degree murder. There were, there were different tiers where she could have been found. Right. Guilty of first-degree murder, which is premeditation. Second-degree murder, which is manslaughter, like crime of passion. You know, right, there's right. different tiers. Sure. But shockingly, the jury comes back with a not guilty. Right. And, and just to clarify here, because we did, we, we did look at all the evidence here, and we actually did speak to a medical expert, Dr. Myra Rodas who's actually my college roommate's dad. (laughs) So he's our podcast medical expert. And heat stroke, hyperthyroidism, those things would never cause a blackout. We always check just because you don't know. You can have long-lasting effects from heat stroke, but this would not be it. What you see in these cases, and we saw it in Leopold Loeb, and we've seen it in other cases where there's a lot of money that's put towards the defense. They bring all these sort of questionable medical experts. Oh, her skull had a like a, you know, they, they brought in a, an x-ray to so that her skull was like concave. Then they brought in someone else to say that was a shadow. It's like you have these dueling IV experts, because that's what you, you wind up with, all these, all these different experts. 
the jurors are confused and she gets on the stand and just cries and is extremely sympathetic. Really, really powerful closing arguments. There are powerful closing arguments. What you can't forget either is that oftentimes trials, especially big trials like this, they're theater. And I'll tell you something, I think her defense attorney, Uderhart, had that sense of theatricality. I'm not sure if Weeks did. Weeks was trying to stick to the facts and nobody really wanted to stick to the facts. This was an emotional decision that the jury made and they come back with the verdict of not guilty. And in fact, there had been this whole coterie of women, very Park Avenue types who were supporting Blanca through this and who would come to the court every day and in fact push each other out of the way and stampede each other to get a seat. There was just this outpouring of support for Blanca and same with the jury. The jury came up to Blanca afterwards and basically shook her hand and said, we did this for you, little girl, you know? It's shocking to me because she does not come across as sympathetic to me. She's very snobby. She's prejudiced. She's I mean, if you listen to her testimony, she doesn't come across as sympathetic, but she does at times. I guess she puts on a great act. She's compelling. Otterheart even invokes scripture to the jury. It is a very compelling closing argument. And she's fully acquitted. And it's it's shocking. She's fully acquitted. And then when she's talking to the press right afterwards, she basically tells them like, yep, it was a performance. And there's nothing they can do about it because double jeopardy, you can't be tried twice for the same crime. But there's no happy ending here. No, no, there is not. I mean, we we see this over and over again, Sarah, where you see these cases and they're like kind of like Greek tragedies because nothing comes to a good end. No, and she gets custody back for Jack Jr. She goes back to Chile. She does. She remarries. But Jack Jr., pretty early on, he basically became estranged from his mother, moved back to the States, had nothing to do with her, and Blanca... DeSalle overdosed at the age of 44 and was gone. So all that money and beauty and advantage she had, and, you know, she had a short, unhappy, tragic life. Yeah. And we see that a lot on Ivy League murders, and it just goes to show you that, you know, it's really an inside job, and all those other exterior things, you know, alone cannot make you happy. That's true, but I wouldn't mind a few of those exterior things. I know, bring them on. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my. Well, it is a tragic story, but you do see these two flawed people who get together and as glamorous as it may look from the outside, it didn't work and ended up in murder. Ended up in murder. Thank you for listening to us for another week of Ivy League Murders. And uh, if you have any input or suggestions, we can be reached on all social media at Ivy League Murders. And our email is ivyleaguemurders at gmail.com. We do want to say a huge thank you to Colin Evans, who's no longer with us, who wrote this wonderful book called The Valentino Affair. And to the Bowie Boys. Murder, murder, murder.